Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It has been a very dramatic week in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, Rihanna. Yeah, it started with the bombing of the Kirsch Bridge, Putin's prized link between Russia and the Crimea. A key road and rail bridge linking Crimea to Russia was destroyed by a major explosion. The Kremlin is blaming the blast on a truck bomb, calling it a terrorist action. Then the tables were turned and Russia bombed Kyiv and a series of Ukrainian cities where life had almost gone back to normal. Ukraine's capital is being rocked by several explosions right in the centre of the city. So in this episode, we're going to cross to a reporter in Ukraine to find out what this week's big developments tell us about where the overall conflict is heading. I've described it as the military equivalent of a temper tantrum because It doesn't change the fundamental facts on the battlefield. And those fundamental facts are this. Ukraine's winning and Russia's losing. First, here are today's headlines. It's Friday the 14th of October. There are more than 150 flood warnings across Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania this morning. The residents of Forbes in New South Wales, along with the Victorian towns Rochester, Carisbrook and Seymour, have been forced to evacuate. This is very serious. This will finish up being one of the most significant flood events we've had for quite some time. That's why our emergency services had done so much prep. That's Dan Andrews there, the Victorian Premier. Yeah, this is shocking. This is the worst floods they've seen in Seymour in 50 years. So over the last 24 hours, the SCS has carried out 100 flood rescues, and that's thanks to up to 200 millimetres of rain in just two days. Yeah, and dozens of schools across the north of Victoria were closed yesterday and will stay closed today, while train lines have been cut across most of the north of the state to wait out the wet. And $1.5 billion, that is the figure that American broadcaster and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay the families of eight victims of the Sandy Hook massacre. This jury has taken back for all of us something we've been uh, hemorrhaging over the last decades, which is core decency and humanity. That's the family's lawyer, Josh Kuskoff, there. And Jones claimed that the 2012 mass shooting was a hoax and that grieving relatives seen in news reports were hired actors. Yeah, so $1.5 billion Australian dollars, that is the damages claim for this suit. It's a big, big number. Obviously, it's good news for those families. Uh, It's estimated that these damages are four times his net worth, but his company has already filed for bankruptcy. So I guess now the fight's going to be on to actually get the money out of him. Yeah, and big news on the other big school shooting in recent history. The Parkland school shooter has escaped the death penalty after murdering 17 students at his former high school. Yeah, so um, on the Alex Jones case, we actually did a briefing topic on it in August because there was a similar um, lawsuit in Texas uh, representing three families, uh, and it was very a very dramatic hearing, Jones was actually in court and had to face off with some of the people whose lives he'd been doing so much harm to. Ultimately, in that case, he was ordered to pay $65 million. So this latest one in Connecticut for eight families is way, way bigger. So hopefully when they do get some money out of him, it stops him from, I guess, spreading lies that ruin people's lives and anyone else that also thinks this is a good business model. Yeah, Tom, I think it sends a really strong message to those who are spreading disinformation that something like this won't happen again. Former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins is expected to resume giving evidence at the trial of Bruce Learman today. 
It's been indicated the trial could be finished by the end of next week um, because the list of 52 witnesses was cut down to just 32. Yeah, so the witness list no longer includes journalists Lisa Wilkinson and Samantha Maiden, but Higgins' former bosses Linda Reynolds and Michaelia Cash will still be giving evidence along with Brittany Higgins' partner David Shiraz and they're expected to take the stand next week. And Bruce Learman has pleaded not guilty to the allegations he sexually assaulted Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. The Bali bombing memorial in Kuta has ended on a grim note. The locals running the ceremony screened a graphic video showing the bombings and the faces of the bombers. It was harrowing for the families of victims. It definitely took me back to 2002, but not exactly in the way I was going to be remembering my mates that I lost right now on this spot. It's just ripped us our hearts apart seeing it all again. That was Jan Lazinski on the ABC. So the Australian government's formally registering its concerns with the Indonesian authorities about the video. The videos and the other things that went on at that ceremony were grossly insensitive uh, to the families of uh, victims uh, of the Bali bombing. Emergency Services Minister Murray Watt there. And the video was prepared by Indonesia's anti-terrorism unit, Densus 88. Yeah, they say they were meant to create a solemn, meaningful moment... Certainly would have been solemn. Um, they've apologised for any discomfort caused. Yeah, bit of a bit of a funny one, isn't it? I guess potentially just shows a real cultural difference on on what you do and you don't show or talk about when you're trying to remember a moment like that. But just just strange that they could get it so so wrong from the Australian point of view. And I guess it's not something you expect to see at a memorial because that vision was quite graphic at the time. All right, in just a moment, thank you to Ukraine. It's been almost nine months since the world watched as Russia invaded Ukraine in what has become the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And since then, more than 6,000 people have died and countless regions heavily shelled. Many expected that Ukraine would fall to the Russians within days, but um, that has definitely not happened. The Ukraine forces have launched an enormous fight back and in recent months have taken back a lot of territory from the Russians. Misha Zelensky is an Australian-Ukrainian who is there reporting on the conflict for the Australian Financial Review. He was in Kyiv on Monday as those blasts hit. Since then, he's driven to a small town a few hundred k's towards the conflict zone. Misha, thank you for joining us. What was it like to be in a city that was bombed again this week? Well, it was obviously enormously shocking. Uh, and what was particularly shocking was that I'd been in Kiev before the war started. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the war was enormously you know, terrorising on a lot of people. But you know, Ukrainians won the battle for Kiev and life had returned to not normal, but something close to normal. And then what you had was a missile strike, multiple missile strikes, in the centre of Kiev. Now, that didn't even happen at the beginning of the war. Now, where the missiles hit, it was several hundred metres from where I was staying in a hotel, literally shook me to wake in the morning. But these missiles hit at 8.30 in the morning while people were on their way to work. Morning commute, Monday morning, and missiles are hitting near universities, near children's parks. So these were calculated to terrorise people. These weren't military targets, and I think that was the most shocking part of all of it. Right, so these were very different attacks to the ones you experienced at the start of the war. Exactly. So at the beginning of the war, the Russians were at least pretending to be hitting military targets. Now they're openly attacking civilian targets. And the reason they're doing that is because they're losing the war. And that's 
kind of the critical thing to remember here. What this really was about was Vladimir Putin trying to cover up for the humiliation that had happened over the weekend where the Kirsch Bridge, which is the bridge that links Crimea to the mainland Russia, he built it in 2018. It's his pride and joy. Uh, it was attacked and largely destroyed just after his 70th birthday. So he launched 80 missiles at Ukraine to make himself feel better. And I've described it as the military equivalent of a temper tantrum because it doesn't change the fundamental facts on the battlefield. And those fundamental facts are this, Ukraine's winning and Russia's losing. Yeah, so Misha, I mean, what kind of effect is this having on the morale, I guess, of Ukrainians that you've been travelling around and talking to? Well, they're very much bored by the fact that they're winning the war. Uh, since the counteroffensive started six weeks ago, they've had enormous victories through the northeast part of the country, around Kharkiv and into Donetsk and Luhansk, and also around the south. It's very possible for winter that they take back the critical city of Kherson, which was one of the first cities that the Russians captured in the opening exchanges, the opening days of the war. And so if the Ukrainians can take back Kherson, it'd be a huge boost to them. So attacks like we saw on Monday, yes, they cause terror. Yes, they're very upsetting. And yes, they really create a lot of anger. But they don't change the morale and determination of the Ukrainians. In fact, they're more determined. You know, only hours after the attack had happened, once the all clear was given and people could come out of their bomb shelters, they're back in cafes, they're back in restaurants, there's lines to barbershops, and they're saying, we're going to win this war. And so if Putin's objective in that attack was to force the capitulation of Ukrainians, that's not happening. In fact, when you look at morale, it's the Russians that have got the morale problem. On the ground, their troops are poorly equipped. They don't know why they're fighting. They're poorly trained. They're poorly led. In many ways, they're deserting. In Russia itself, those that haven't been called up in the mobilisation and trying to get out of the country. So it's Russia that has the morale problem, not Ukraine. Yeah, you, you talked about taking back the city of Kherson, potentially. Can you tell us more about the advances the Ukraine forces have made in the last couple of months? You know, we've heard in the news here in Australia that they've taken back big swathes of territory, but a lot of us don't really understand the lay of the land over there and how significant these gains are. Sure. Can you help explain that for us? Well, I'll try to paint a bit of a picture. So Kiev is in the middle of the country. The Russians try to take that at the beginning, lost the battle for Kiev. Another critical city, people might have heard of this city called Kharkiv. Now, that was a city that the Russians have been bombarding very hard as well. A Russian-speaking city, mind you, as Kiev is traditionally. Of course, they're all increasingly speaking Ukrainian by itself without Russian. But Kharkiv's to the northeast. The Russians got completely pushed out of that part of Ukraine. They basically got pushed right back to the border of Russia, and so Ukraine now more or less controls that northeastern part of the country. Now, as you head further southeast of the country, where Donetsk and Luhansk are, the Russians again are being pushed right back out of these areas. Now, what's extraordinary about cities like Izium, cities like Liman, these were towns that took the Russians months to gain, huge amounts of losses of their troops, of their tanks, of their equipment. A lot of effort and energy went into capture those, and they've lost some of these areas in hours and days. When you look at the humiliation of Putin, the best way to think about it is Friday, a couple of weeks ago, he gives a speech saying, I'm annexing four of these territories. Only hours later, they're getting kicked out of these parts of Ukraine. The Russian flags are coming down and the Ukrainian flags are going up. But I think the really critical battle, and this is the one that if anyone's watching the war saying, where should I be paying attention? It's in the south around Kherson, which is basically straight down from Kiev. So Kherson is a critical city 
the Russians are trapped there at the moment. Putin's not letting them withdraw. He's saying you must stay there. And they are being bombarded relentlessly on the western side of the Dnipro River by the Ukrainians with their superior artillery from the Americans and NATO allies. And so if the Russians are forced to stay there by Putin to defend Kherson, it's possible, and a, a US uh, military expert said to me, that Russia lost the majority of its good troops at the beginning of the war, but if they get beaten in Kherson, they could be looking at generational wipeout of their army. So it is a really critical battle underway here. Putin's desperate to hang on to winter because winter will effectively not just freeze the country, but it will freeze the conflict. So he thinks he can hang on to winter. It will allow him to reposition and regain some capability. So a lot can happen between now and Christmas. But if you're watching closely, the southern port city of Kherson is where the main action is. So do you think that's where it's going to go from? Like that's where we're heading from here? Well, the reason why Kherson's important as well is it then opens up Crimea. So Crimea, it's the gateway to Crimea. Crimea's water flows through Kherson. So one of the reasons the Russians were so desperate to capture Kherson was as soon as Crimea got annexed in 2014, the Ukrainians, quite unsurprisingly, closed the North Crimea Canal. So there's a big canal that channels water down there, 85% of the water that goes to Crimea comes through there. The Ukrainians just switched it off. The other thing that Kherson does by capturing it, it then allows the Ukrainians to protect a lot of their other cities more effectively, like Odessa and Mykolaiv. So it's a critical jigsaw piece. It's why Putin went for it right at the beginning. It's why he's defending it so grimly right now. But the truth is, he's got 25,000 troops trapped on the wrong side of the river. They've got stupid orders, frankly, and they're likely to be encircled. And if the Ukrainians can do it quick enough, they could capture it uh, before Christmas. So what do you think's going to happen? Where are we at in, say, six to 12 months? Is this conflict done? Oh, look, it's very hard to say. At the same time, Russia's still got huge capabilities. It's got a lot of people who can call up. It's a country of 140 million people. They just caught up 300,000 troops. Now, even if those were, let's say only half of them were even moderately equipped, that takes Putin's troops back up to what he started with at the beginning of the invasion. So, you know, Russia's a huge country. The other thing is Russia can destroy Ukraine whilst losing the war. And they've kind of proven that on Monday. They can send these missiles at distance and really bombard quite aggressively. And that's their really their expertise. What the Russians do best is level cities and countries to rubble. And so that's a big fear. So we couldn't possibly cast forward six to 12 months. I think that's very hard. If you start, go back seven months when the war started, most people said Ukraines wouldn't survive 24 hours. The most generous estimates were 72 hours. Hmm. Here we are seven months later with the Ukrainians really kind of kicking the Russians' ass all over Ukraine. But wars can ebb and flow. The Russians are going to make the winter very difficult. The aim there is really to freeze Ukrainians as it gets cold here, and it's getting very cold, especially me as an Aussie. I'm a wussy Aussie. <laughs> I don't handle cold weather very well. <laughs> They're deliberately trying to make it you know, very cold here uh, for Ukrainians. And uh, that's something to watch. On the, on the flip side, Russians are terribly equipped. They're going to struggle in the winter too, and they're a long way from home. So winter will shift the war yet again. And so I think that's an unpredictable factor. But what I'd say is this. Napoleon, when he discussed war, he said, morale is worth more than every other factor of warfare combined. Size of your army, the complexity of your, of your artillery, et cetera. Morale is a key thing. And as I was saying before, Ukrainians have got the morale. They're on top right now. The Russians don't. It's hard to imagine the Russian morale getting better through a cold winter.
Misha, you know, someone who's there, I mean, what aren't we hearing in the news here that you think those in the West should be? Well, I think the big thing is, and I was talking to a representative from the uh, Ministry of Defence the other day, and he said to me, why does it always take something bad to happen for our friends to give us what we need? There's an equation here at play, which is the Ukrainians are winning the war, but they can't win the war without Western support, Western weapons, Western aid. That's just the facts. But they are prepared to fight and die for themselves. They're not asking anyone to come here and fight. They're not asking anyone to die in their war. What they're saying is, Give us the things that we need to defend ourselves. So give us the air defences to stop missile attacks and give us the weaponry we need to push the Russians out. Give us the artillery we need. Give us the long-range artillery capabilities. Give us the tanks that we need. And all they're asking us to do is to maybe pay a bit more for oil and gas, particularly in Europe, and higher electricity bills and send weapons. And when you consider that's the trade-off and what you we could be seeing here is perhaps one of the biggest victories by any small democracy against a massive invading autocratic neighbour in history, um, I think that's a small price for us to pay. And the confidence and importance of a Ukrainian victory, not just for Ukraine, but for every democracy, I think is so important. So that's a big thing for me is they can win. They've shown they can win. They've shown they can fight. Do we have the stomach to pay a bit more for electricity and gas and to continue to arm them for perhaps a longer struggle? than you know, we anticipated. I think that's a trade that we can make, but it's one that we need to continue to make every single day. And what that will require is not turning away, not turning the television off, not turning the radio off and paying attention to what's happening here because it's really a critical battle, not just for Ukraine, but for everyone. That was Misha Zelinsky, Australian-Ukrainian reporting from Ukraine for the Australian Financial Review. And Rihanna... I mean, he had a very optimistic picture of how Ukraine's forces are progressing in recent weeks, but even though they're doing so well, he really couldn't see an easy exit from this conflict given Putin's resources and resolve. It was interesting to listen to him about the advantage that the Ukraine could have in the winter, although we know now that Putin has started bombing uh, power stations, which is, I guess, one way to kind of freeze out the opposition and freeze out your enemy in a way. So it'll be interesting to see how the Ukraine maintains this advantage and whether they can do that. And I think watching what happens um, and how this conflict changes as winter approaches, I think the world will have to continue to watch. Well, not just watch, potentially support Ukraine even more, particularly for those missile defences, because I I don't think anyone enjoyed watching those bombs hit civilian areas at peak hour on a Monday morning. No, and and that has been the thing also about these long-range missiles, the lack of air defence that the Ukraine has and what part that NATO has been playing in all of this, as it seems that this hasn't really come quick enough, particularly for Ukraine. All right, tomorrow is the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Who have we got, Jamila? Wow, what a story I have for you this weekend. I have interviewed the quite remarkable Emma Carey. Emma was just 20 years old in 2013 and she went skydiving with a mate of hers. During that dive, her parachute and her emergency chute became entangled and they choked her instructor unconscious. And what that meant was that Emma fell 15,000 feet to the ground. Quite unbelievably, 
Emma did survive and she's told me the story of how she got through that recovery and what that was like for her and the experience of a six-year-long court case and how she is living life now with spinal cord injury and incontinence and loving every minute of it. Honestly, it is the most eye-opening and wild story you will ever hear and Emma is quite delightful and brilliant. Wow, that is a really wild story. Uh, Look forward to that in your feed tomorrow on the weekend briefing. The rest of us will be back Monday. Hope you have an awesome weekend. A big thank you to the hardworking briefing team. Catch you later. Listener.